Thank you, Pastor Reese. It's good to see you all gathered around God's Word this morning as we gather to remember the Lord's death. If you have a Bible, turn with me, please, to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, Paul's letter to the church at Philippi. It was the first church to be planted in Europe. You can read the story of it. In Acts chapter 16, Paul wanted to go east to Bithynia. The Spirit of God didn't allow him to do that, and during the night he received a vision of a man from Macedonia, which was the region in which the city of Philippi was set. And he was saying to Paul in the vision, come over into Macedonia and help us. And Paul, rather than going east, came west. And the church that was planted in Macedonia first was the church at Philippi. And when you think about that, how different would the Western world have been had the Spirit of God allowed Paul to go east and not west? That's a whole other sermon. Philippians chapter 2, please. Let's read the first 11 verses. If you have access to the Bible on your phone or a tablet or a physical copy of the Bible in your hand, I would encourage you to keep it open. I'm going to refer to the verses that we'll read. I want you to see that what I'm saying is actually in the Bible. And I didn't make it up out of my own head because I'm good at that. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing. Don't do anything from selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Look each of you let each of you, sorry, look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among you, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for the opportunity and the privilege that is ours to speak of these wonderful things, the greatest truths in the universe are our privilege this morning again to listen to. We just pray that the wonder and the glory and the grandeur of what we have read will again grip our hearts so that we might leave this church this morning that little bit more like our Savior Jesus. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. What we've read this morning, brothers and sisters, is one of the great portions of Scripture on the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And although it is that, we would do well to remember that Paul here in writing these verses is not writing a theological thesis. He's not composing a doctrinal dissertation. Paul here is writing from a prison as a pastor. He's concerned for the unity of the church at Philippi. Paul knows what you and I are slow to learn, that the basis for all Christian unity is humility. The basis for all unity is humility. And so he presents to these folks here at Philippi the greatest example of humility that the world has ever seen in the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ into this world. And if he'd have known this hymn, I have no doubt he maybe could have sung it as he penned these verses. One day when heaven was filled with his praises, one day when sin was as black as can be, Jesus came forth to be born of a virgin, dwelt among men. My example is he. Living he loved me, dying he saved me, buried he carried my sins far away, rising he justified freely forever. One day he's coming. Oh, glorious day. In these verses, brothers and sisters, there are three mindsets. You know what a mindset is? In these verses, we see three mindsets, and I just want to highlight them for you this morning, and then we'll sing again, and then we're home. But as we go home, I trust that the weight and the wonder and the grandeur of these verses rests heavily upon our lives in the wake as it approaches us. Three mindsets. Number one, the mindset of Christ. Secondly, the mindset of God. And thirdly and finally, the mindset of believers. The mindset of Christ. What was it? What is it? It's summed up there in three words, right in the middle of verse 8. He humbled himself. What did that humbling of himself involve? What did it entail? Well, Paul outlines it for us, does he not? In a series of downward steps. And in so doing, he gives us an insight into the mindset of Christ. Verse 6 tells us, he was God. Jesus Christ was God. All the attributes of God are and remain the attributes of Jesus Christ. There was never a time, brothers and sisters, never a time when he was not God. He is eternally, he is truly, he is totally God. Verse 6 continues, although he was God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. In other words, even though on earth he was in the form of God, he did, that, he did not make that special privilege that was his something that he was unprepared to let go of. He did not, he did not make the special privilege that was his. Because he was the second person of the Trinity, that special privilege that was his, he didn't make it something that he was unprepared to let go of. You see, brothers and sisters, Jesus Christ did not cling to his prerogatives as God. Because Jesus Christ had a greater priority than his own uninterrupted glory. 
Jesus had a greater priority than his own uninterrupted glory. You say, well, Tim, what was that great priority? The glory of his Father and the redemption of his people. That was his greater priority than his own uninterrupted glory. <coughs> Verse 7 tells us, he made himself nothing. You see, brothers and sisters, these downward steps here. We've read that Christ's mindset was he humbled himself. What did it involve? Here it is. Downward steps. Verse 7, he made himself nothing. J.B. Phillips paraphrases that phrase. He stripped himself of all privilege. He made himself nothing. And the rest of verses 7 and 8 tell us what it meant for Christ to make himself nothing. He made himself nothing. What's the next word in verse 7? Taking. He made himself nothing by taking. Taking. Jesus Christ in coming to earth made himself nothing. Not by subtraction. He wasn't on earth anything less than what he was in heaven. He made himself nothing, not by division. He wasn't half man and half God. He was fully God and fully man. He made himself nothing, not by subtraction, not by division. Jesus Christ made himself nothing by addition. Addition, taking, taking to himself the form of a servant. So you look at the person of Christ, brothers and sisters, and you don't say, you know, of what did he empty himself? It's better to look at Christ and say, into what did he empty himself? And what he emptied himself into was humanity. Humanity. Benjamin B. Warfield, the theologian, said, the Lord of the world, the Lord of the world became a servant in the world. He whose right it was to rule took obedience as his life's characteristic. It's not incredible that he whose right it was to rule took obedience as his life's characteristic. He became nothing, taking the form of a servant. He became a man. And I know in 2023, with humanity so stuck on itself, we can't imagine anything more incredible than being a man. But if you were God, to become a man, as C.S. Lewis says, it's like a man becoming a slug. Sometimes you go out to the bin to throw the rubbish in, and there's a slug clinging to the side of the bin. Yet, brothers and sisters, the downward steps don't stop there. Paul continues, born, born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. Can you see this morning the tiny embryonic Jesus in the womb of this teenage girl, Mary, in the darkness? being fed by this umbilical cord. Imagine what it was for the second person of the Trinity 
to be pushed in labour through a birth canal into the poverty of first century Galilee to walk the dusty streets of Nazareth to smell and embrace all the sights and sounds of the poverty of the first century just a man sings Mary Magdalene in the musical Jesus Christ Superstar he's just a man and I've seen so many men before in so many different ways he's just one more but he wasn't just one more he was so much more than just a man do you remember in Mark 4 from your Sunday school days when he stood and he calmed the storm you know the story so well the disciples were terrified they were caught in the midst of a storm that they'd never encountered before and they thought they were going to drown and they woke Jesus and Jesus stood up and he said be still peace be still and all of a sudden there was a flat calm the waves and the sea became like glass and there wasn't even a breeze and what was the reaction of the disciples they began to high-five each other. They took off their anoraks and swung them in the air. No, they didn't. They were terrified. They were now more afraid of the man who was with them in the boat than they were of the storm that he just calmed. They were filled, if you like, as psychiatrists call it, xenophobia. You know, that fear of another world, of alien life. They were filled with great fear, says Mark. It's hard for us in 2023 to grasp because for many people, well, God's just my buddy. God's just my genie in the lab and a robot and he jumps out and does whatever I tell him to do. Or he's my pal or he's the big man in the sky or whatever. He is God. Sovereign God of heaven and earth. As Spurgeon called him our supreme dread. And they said, remember what they said. What manner of man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him there was now with them in the boat something that was more frightening to them than the sea and what was with them in the boat was the immediate presence of God and they were freaked out to say the least and they said, what kind of man is this? I mean, think about that, brothers and sisters. Don't worry, we will get on to don't be proud. I haven't forgotten my, my brief. But the Bible is all about Jesus, brothers and sisters, not about us. Why would I get up and talk about myself when we've got this? I mean, for goodness sake. In the pulpit in Uri we had above it, we would see Jesus. As a constant reminder, we want to see Jesus. I want to see, I want to hear Jesus. They said, what kind of man is this? Think about that. I mean, we meet new people all the time, scores and scores of people every day, Monday through Saturday, in our work-a-day life. People coming towards us, people in shops or whatever, and if you're like me, you normally give them a quick once-over with, with your eyes. And you see different things. The guy that came to fix our broadband the other Saturday, I said to Martina, he's got cracking teeth. <laughs> yeah, just a guy in his 30s, he had lovely teeth. I thought, where did he get them? Are they false? And I thought, well, he's in his 30s. They're not false, they're obviously 
after he's had work done or whatever it is, you know. So you do that, you give people a once over. You know, you're watching them coming towards you. You're wondering, brothers and sisters, as, as you look at them, you're going through this classification process. You're going through this sorting process. You're kind of making an assessment about this stranger who's approaching you. Are they a header or are they decent? Is she a balloon or are they sensible? Is he a threat or is he not? You're going through this sorting process, sometimes unconsciously. And what happened to these disciples on the Sea of Galilee was, as they went through this sorting process, it wouldn't compute. They couldn't categorize. They didn't have a category for someone who could calm a storm with his voice. They had nowhere to put him. Other than God. They were so afraid. So he appeared to be a man. And in so doing, verse 8, Philippians chapter 2 continues, he became obedient unto death. The downward steps continue. He didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He let it go. He stripped himself of all privilege. He was born. He took the form of a servant. was found in fashion as a man. Became obedient unto death. That's not strictly true, brothers and sisters. If you have an NIV Bible, the NIV says he became obedient to death. That is not strictly true. Jesus Christ was never obedient to death. Death had no mastery over Jesus Christ. He said in John chapter 2, nobody takes my life from me. I have the power to lay it down and I have the power to take it again. It is more accurate to say that Jesus Christ was obedient unto death, up to the very point of death, because the obedience of Jesus Christ was to the will of his Father. And the will of his Father was that by his death, he would bear the penalty that my sin deserved. Not only obedient unto death, but to a particular kind of death. Now we're down again in verse 9. Even death on a cross. You know, I think, brothers and sisters, we would really need to be first century Roman citizens to feel the shock value of that statement for the simple reason that the word cross and indeed the family of nouns and verbs that surround it, you know, crucify, crucifixion, the cross, those words were an obscenity, an obscenity in the first century Roman world. What would you think of me this afternoon if you came in here and there came out of my mouth a whole string of obscenities? You would be shocked. It would go viral on YouTube, wouldn't it? <laughs> to mention the cross... In Roman society was an obscenity. And in fact, even when the death sentence was passed upon Jesus as it was passed by Pilate, and, and, and the Romans crucified tens of thousands of people, to Pilate Jesus was just another one. When the, when the, the sentence was passed and the, the, the formula used, they only used the word cross in it once. They were so hesitant to use it. So in Pilate, in sentencing Christ, he would have said, Ibisad crucem, 
you will go to the cross. There he stood, thorns on his head, being battered, slapped about the face. Now reed banged on his head, there he stood. And Pilate brought him out and said, Eke homo, behold the man. Then he washed his hands. Impudent crucem, you will go to the cross. And Paul is saying, brothers and sisters, that's how far down he came. And here in these verses, it's not so much what the cross means to us as believers, and it's precious. In these verses, Paul is highlighting here what the cross meant for him. He's the son of God. A young man in his early 30s. He's a 12-year-old kid. He had said to Mary and Joseph, why is it that you were looking for me? Did you not know that I must be about my father's business in my father's house? And here he is now engaged in the father's business. That he would come, brothers and sisters, to, from heaven's highest glory to the Roman Empire's deepest obscenity, the mindset of Christ. Remember our message now, don't be proud. No wonder Paul said in 2 Corinthians 8 and verse 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, Yet for your sake he became poor, that we through his poverty might become rich. Secondly, and more briefly, the mindset of God. Stephen's already touched on it here at the Lord's table. The mindset of God. You'll notice verse 9 begins with the word, therefore. Therefore. In light of this movement from heaven's highest glory to the Roman Empire's deepest obscenity. In light of the willing mindset of the Lord Jesus Christ to become the Redeemer, there's a sense in which we are bound to ask the question of Paul, what's God going to do then? What's God the Father going to do about this? What's he going to do in light of this? And Paul moves from the mindset of Christ to the mindset of the Father in verses 9 to 11. See, Jesus knew, brothers and sisters, because we know this from the Gospels. Jesus knew that his father always loved him. Always loved him. But we also know from John chapter 10, that within that profound relationship that we can't fully understand between the incarnate Son on earth and the heavenly Father in glory, we know that there was a special moment in the life of Jesus. When the father could say of the son, if ever I loved you, my Jesus tis now. And Jesus tells us in John chapter 10, when that special moment was, it would be when he would hang upon the cross. When he experienced the deepest, darkest obscenity of bearing my sin upon the cross on Calvary, hanging there in darkness, stark, naked, for all the world to see, lifted up between heaven and earth as though he was fit for neither. He was just the scum of the earth. The Jewish law said, cursed is everyone who is hung upon a tree, and there he hangs. And with the breaking heart of his heavenly Father, 
in lamentation, looking over his son. No doubt there was a sense of what we don't often sing, if ever I loved you, my Jesus, tis now. And therefore, says Paul, just as he was humiliated in these three stages, he will be exalted in three stages. Oh, Stephen already highlighted it. God has highly exalted him. Nobody went lower. No one's going higher. No one. No one. Secondly, the Father has given him a name that is above every name. And thirdly, one day, every knee, every knee will bow. Every throat will confess. He is curious. He is Lord. What a day. What a day. The mindset of God. In this world, I think I could say reverently this afternoon, this is the deepest passion of our Heavenly Father. The exaltation of His Son. Finally, the mindset of Christ, the mindset of the Father, all of that is set within the context where it becomes clear that the reason Paul is teaching as he's teaching here is to change the mindset of the believer. You'll see it there in the first four verses of Philippians 2. This is the mindset of the believer that ought to flow from our understanding, from our grasp of the mindset of Christ and the mindset of the Father that ought to flow from that a particular mindset, and it's there in verses 2 to 4. Paul says, complete my joy. As we would say, listen, love, listen, mate, would you do something for me? Would you make my joy even greater than it already is? By being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Do you do that? Do I do that? I mean, these verses aren't difficult. Do we do that? No. We struggle to do that. And yet, brothers and sisters, the Lord Jesus counted more important than himself people who were less important than himself. And that's what the Spirit of God is working to produce in the lives of the people of God. The mind of Christ is reproduced in the minds of his people so that we, in verse 3, do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. Do you see that word there in verse 4, conceit? Conceit. If you have a King James Bible, it'll say vain glory. Vain glory. The word conceit there is an English word that the translators have put in to try and describe two Greek words. You don't need to know a single word of Greek to understand the New Testament. Do you hear me? But sometimes if you dig, you find a wee nugget like this, like a wee nugget of gold. And this is a wee golden nugget that I discovered in my study of this text. Conceit. Vain glory. Conceit. It is two Greek words. Do you know what the word is in Greek? 
keno doxian. Keno doxian. Let's look at the word keno empty. Doxian glory. Vain glory. Empty of glory. Now look at verse 4. Do nothing out of being empty of glory, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. So let's just bring it right down, brothers and sisters, to where we live our lives. Why can't we act like a family in church? I'm not talking about this church. Thankfully, we are as united a church as I've ever been in. And with all our differences and our opinions, we get that. We're adults, and that's fair enough. But you look across Christendom, you look across many churches, and you wonder, and you stand back, and you think, and you go and preach, and you walk away, and you drive away in the car, and you think, why can we not act like a family? Why can't we love each other? Why can't we count others as more significant than ourselves? What is it that makes me such a nuisance in the house? What is it that makes me such a pain in the neck to other people? What is it that causes confusion and division among the people of God? It is, brothers and sisters, when you have people who have no greater priority than seeking for that which they know they're empty of. Glory! We seek glory for ourselves because we think we need it. What does glory mean? Glory means weariness. Glory means recognition. Glory means praise, validation, importance. So again, beloved, let's not lie to ourselves. We all want recognition. We all want praise. We all want validation. We all want to feel important. We want glory. And because we feel empty of glory, conceit, we do not count people above ourselves because we are number one. We want the likes on our Facebook and Instagram posts because it says something about us. We want the glory. You feel empty of glory, so you seek it. C.S. Lewis said, although he said, true humility, true humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. In Northern Ireland, we're good at thinking less of ourselves, aren't we? You know that false humility that we all put on? That's a lovely dress you're wearing. Ach, you know, it'll do me, it'll do me. I just got it in pre-market, it was only a fiver. Instead of just saying, aye, it is. Thanks very much. You know, in the United States, it's different. You know, you say to somebody here, you've got a beautiful home. You've got a lovely house. Ach, you know, does us, does us. You know, we're here 20 years and you begin making excuses and blah, 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 blah. And, and in America, they just say, thank you. Thank you very much. Worked hard for it. God's been good to us. So true humility is not thinking less of yourself. True humility is thinking of yourself less. And that happens when our focus is somewhere else. And the solution to this, brothers and sisters, is as the Bible always does. The solution to these problems, these defects in our Christian walk. Paul doesn't provide us seven keys on humility. You get that everywhere now in Christian stuff. Key to this, the key to that, and the key to the other blanket thing. Seven keys. There's none of that. Paul turns our gaze to Jesus. All the time. Look away from yourself. Look to Christ. 
He says, let this mind be in you, which is yours in Christ Jesus. The mind of Christ ought to be ours. The kind of mind that, as John reminds us in John chapter 13, Jesus knew that he'd come from God. He was going back to God. Jesus knew that the Father had given everything into his hand. In that moment, what does he do? He takes those hands into which God has placed everything, all authority in heaven and on earth. He takes those hands he puts them into a basin of water and he goes to work on the stinking cabs of his disciples' feet. If that was me, I'm telling you now, I'm not keen on feet. I would be looking over and saying, look at the hack of Peter's cabs. There's no way I'm going near them. He's got feet like Frodo. If he thinks I'm touching those, look at the hair on those toes. I mean, my goodness, I am not touching those. And while all that is going on in my mind, Jesus takes his outer garment off, goes and gets a towel, ties it around, and, and he starts with the first, the first fella. I'm sure the silence was deafening. The sound of a clay basin being pulled along a stone floor. Can you hear it? Sound of water splashing. Don't be proud. Look at this. Look at this. See, brothers and sisters, how often do we say, if she thinks, I'll apologize. And we don't say it in church. Rock, how you love? How are you? Good to see you. God bless you. Are you keeping keeping well? And then we go home. Do you see her? If she thinks I'll apologize, hell will freeze over before I'll apologize. I'm telling you now. I'm telling you that now. Now, I was a pastor for 18 years. I know the number of times people have had roasted pastor for lunch on a Sunday, I'm sure, is incredible. So I, I didn't really care anymore. How often do we be like, you know, well, fair enough, but if, if, if he wants to apologize to me, then that's fine. But I'm not going to say sorry first, because after all, I didn't start it. I didn't start it. If he wants to come to me and apologize, then that's fair enough. But I'm not going to apologize to him, because everybody knows I didn't start it. What am I like? Have this mind, verse 5, among yourselves, which is yours in Jesus Christ. You see, brothers and sisters, when I look away to my Savior, and this is why, brothers and sisters, I, I can encourage you, a daily devotional life is so important to keep short accounts with God. Whether in the morning or in the afternoon or in the evening, whatever suits you. Because, because when, you, when you kneel before the Lord and you have your open Bible or you sit at your dining room table and you have a big cup of coffee and you talk to the Lord, very often, the last thing that I want to talk to him about is the first thing that he wants to talk to me about. And there's no going forward un until that's sorted. My dad used to sing an old hymn. It was called An Evening Prayer. And it went like this. If I have wounded any soul today or caused one's foot to go astray, if I have walked in my own sinful way, dear Lord, forgive and the old saints used to talk about keeping short accounts with God. Whereas you walk with Christ, you nip things in the bud really quickly. And you see the thing, brothers and sisters, when I, I'm going to talk about myself, when I look away to Jesus Christ in those moments, and it's just me and him, 
all my selfish aspirations die in the person of Jesus. This mind is already yours in Jesus Christ. Do you know it on a moment-by-moment daily basis? The answer is no, we don't. We are a forgetful people. And again and again, brothers and sisters, that's why we look away to Christ. He not only took care of my sin problem, he took care of my pride problem, my lack of humility. Remember in closing, do you remember we said we are empty of glory? In verse 7, when it says Jesus made himself nothing, it's the same word, keno. So literally, we are empty of glory, so we seek it. Christ is full of glory. He gave it away. He set it aside. He emptied himself. We want glory because we don't have it. We seek acceptance. We seek validation. We seek significance. We want people to turn their face toward us and give us their attention. And Christ, who is full of glory, gave up acceptance, gave up validation, gave up significance to the degree that on the cross, the Father turns his face away as wounds which mar the chosen one. Bring many sons to where? Glory! Because Jesus emptied himself of his glory, died on the cross for my sin, now I have been given the righteousness of Christ. And when the Father looks at us, seeing the righteousness of his Son, which means although we're seeking validation, we've already got it from the creator of heaven and earth himself. We're seeking acceptance. We've already got it. We're accepted within the beloved. Though we seek being loved, we've already got it perfectly by a God who is himself love. And though we seek for people to turn their face toward us, the Father has already turned his face toward us. In Jesus Christ, he is my Father. So because we have all these things, we can stop looking for them. Because we know what awaits us, we have full acceptance, we can stop looking for it, and we can take the time then to finally build others up, to treat them, count them as more significant than ourselves. We don't have that mindset by nature. That mindset was given to us by the Spirit of God. But listen, brothers and sisters, as we close, we don't have that mindset by nature, but we begin to get it when we begin to get this. He came from highest heaven's glory to the Roman Empire's deepest obscenity for my salvation. And that as I receive him as Savior and Lord, I receive no other. I can't have the exalted Jesus without having the humiliated Christ. And as I embrace him in faith, as he's offered to me in the gospel, I begin to experience what the Father's deepest desire for me is, that he should begin to make me more and more like his son, that I in turn would not be proud. Don't be proud. Why so? In light of this, in light of this, 
that I in turn would not be proud, but I would count others more important than myself. What the church requires according to these verses is not that it would be filled with somebody's, but that it would be filled with nobody's who have crucified their egos and become somebody in Jesus Christ. Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God that he might exalt you in due time. Thank you for your tremendous attention. I've gone five minutes over my time but you're unlucky in that you came to the second service and you can do that. I'm going to invite the worship team and they'll come and lead us in a final hymn and song of praise. Let's pray as they come. Father, we thank you for the glimpse of our Saviour. We thank you for all that he is, all that he became for us, all that he did for us. As we would sometimes sing when we were boys, who am I that a king would bleed and die for me? Lord, I thank you for every single home and family here represented. As we separate this afternoon, may we go with your smile upon us, recognizing that the things that we seek, we've already been given. We thank you for our Saviour Jesus. What a treasure he is. Tell you, Lord, that we love you. We absolutely love you. We can't wait to see you. Can't wait to look in your face. For many years, Lord, you've been a name on a page. Someone that we've spoke to, as Peter said, though having not seen him, we love him. Can't wait to see you. Can't wait to tell you how much you've meant. The difference you've made in our lives. I have kept us. Lord, hasten the day. In your lovely name we pray. Amen.